0: Hello and welcome to the Rethinking Sustainability podcast with Ben, Jazz, and Dan. Navigating the complexities of sustainability one pod at a time. I'm Ben McCabe, founder of McCabe & Partners, a purpose-driven executive search and talent advisory.
1: And I'm just going to say, founder of Recycle App, a recycling software platform that tackles the problem of waste going into the landfill.
2: It's been an interesting journey, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Thinking back now, all these years, I think the bug, the electric bug, if you want, <laughs> hit me like about 12, 13 years ago when I was in uh, I was in my college in Imperial in uh, in the UK. A lot of the pollution is not around those gas guzzlers that we see. Like We see patrols on the road, yeah. but the ones that are making the real pollution, actually those diesel pickup trucks. You know, those old ones from 10 years ago For that sure, are used to die. And you really need to have a product that's able to get to market. That's so compelling. That people just go yep i'm adopting it i mean that's how if you look at most of the tech that we use today you know when it comes to retail, apps chat gpt i mean you know this stuff is so compelling mm. that it almost makes a it, it makes its own case you don't really need anybody outside of it electricity is everywhere right? it's in every building so it's just a matter of figuring out how to smartly manage it and how to then deliver it to the cars so that everybody has you know what they need
0: Mr. Jazz and Dan, welcome back. Episode 8. How are we doing, both? Doing well. Yeah, not bad. I just got back uh,
1: less than 24 hours ago. Yeah. Uh, it's been uh, interesting 24 hours back cause, um Sleeping patterns have gone all, all over the place. But yes, episode eight, man. Yeah. We, Did you
0: think we were going to get here? No. And I think, you know what? Looking at the stats, not that we should be showing off about these things, but there's around 2,000 people that have downloaded us so far. And I don't know what is what measures success, Ooh, but thank you. for me, you know, anyone other than my parents and you guys listen to this, I think it's quite nice. And that's a humbling sort of milestone, I think. So I think, you know, we should always take a bit of a pat on the back. Um, I think we've been fortunate to have some great guests so far in the season.
3: I think that's a testament to the guests as well. Like it's not just us. It's not just us. It's the guests that have come on that have been helping us get to that point.
0: Completely true. Yeah, it's all about the uh, the quality of the content, which is uh, led by the guests. And a nice nice segue into our latest guest uh, for the season, Mr. Salman Hussein. How are you? Hi. Good. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Yeah, super excited about this one because I guess there's a bit of context. Salman Hussein is the co-founder, and CEO for Fuse, which is a UAE-based uh, EV converting business, um, which someone's going to sort of help demystify and explain in in layman terms for us, I'm sure. I think. Before we go any further, I think it's probably good to sort of set the tone really around, you know, what is the challenge in the broader sense? Now, this is, I guess, EV for dummies, uh, which we put ourselves very much into that bracket. But, um, you know, just looking at some of the stats, really, you know, in terms of like the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions from human activities, it's really all born out of, as we know, burning fossil fuels for electricity, heat and mobility. And yeah, look, in layman's terms, obviously, all of these gases contribute to uh, the global warming effect and greenhouse gases, trap heat in our atmosphere, which obviously contributes to the global warming effect. So we all know the issues with fossil fuel-powered mobility, but why do we need to care about this? Salman, over to you, my friend. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself. What got you on this journey? We're very keen to understand, you know, what fuse is here to set out and, yeah, what what got you into this point today?
2: Well, um, it's been an interesting journey, definitely. (laughs) Thinking back now, all these years, I think the bug... The electric bug, if you want, <laughs> hit me like about 12, 13 years ago when I was in, uh, I was in my college in Imperial in, uh, in the UK. And then, you know, back then there was obviously no concept of electric cars as we know them now. Uh, but we did have an Indian car called Mahindra g which is this really tiny, very anemic looking car. <laughs> but London was giving those cars free parking spots. And so I was like, oh, right, well, so they clearly understand that there is something better about these vehicles than not. And of course, you know, this was around the time when, um, you know, all the stuff was happening with Tesla, but not like the the stuff that we know now as in with the Model S and stuff. At that time, the model, the, the Roadster was just coming out. Mm-hmm. And so the Roadster comes out in 2009, 10, you know, around that, uh, around that time frame. And I see a huge jump from what I'm seeing here on the road, you know, this little weird thing. <laughs> then you have this Roadster, which goes super fast, you know, um, 200 miles of range. And I was like, wow, that's a huge leap. Clearly, these are going somewhere. And then, of course, 2012 comes around with the Model S. Really, you can credit Elon for that one thing, which is to make EVs mainstream. The dude has just single-handedly done it. Yeah. You know, no matter his methods. (laughs) But yeah, I kind of took a fascination. But sitting here in the UAE, there's not much you can do. So in 2016, Diva was trying these electric cars out. They they had just come out here, uh, French cars called Renault, Zoe's. Yeah. And I was super keen on them. And what had happened was had given three out as a part of a raffle draw three people that won these cars and they really wanted these people to use them unfortunately they were like a hundred kilometers of range
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and so nobody wanted them <laughs> so uh, 100
1: kilometers is generally what like a 10-minute drive, 15-minute drive, what are you
2: looking at? On the highway, probably. <laughs> but like, uh, no, but like 100 kilometers is, you know, uh, it'll take you something, it'll take you from like one end of Dubai maybe to the other or something yeah. like that. But
3: that's before um, you even factor in air conditioning and no, we,
2: electricity. Well, there, I, uh, it's, it was realistic. I mean, on the dashboard, it would say 130. But, you know, when you factor in everything, you'd get close to 100. So we were already accounting for that
1: fact. I was Dubai, to Abu
2: Dhabi maybe? It's about 100 k No, no. no, no. no. I, think you, I
1: think you'd fall a bit short of Abu Dhabi. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And maybe this was, what, 10 years ago you said? No, this was about 2016. Six, seven it years ago. Seven years ago. So it's seven years ago, you don't want to get stuck outside Abu Dhabi. Like, I mean... Yeah. There, there was no <laughs> infrastructure back then. Yeah, like there's no battery. There's no uh, chargers. Easily available at that point as well, I'm assuming?
2: They were. They were the thing is that they were quite a... The charges that were there were not being used by anybody. So this is a good thing. But yeah, you don't want to be stuck out, especially in Abu Dhabi. They mm-hmm. didn't have anything developed at the time. If you did, if you ran a charge, good luck, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> and so I have actually gotten stranded two times with that car. Uh, then I had to recover them and take them to the nearest charging station or back home. But, you know, it served me for the most part quite well. And then, uh, you know, I started joining some clubs, started getting interested in things. And I started, um, I actually got a chevy bolt which is now the car that i still drive today and the jump that is there from you know this car that i bought for like fifty thousand the zoe and now this car that i buy for 120 huge leaps and bounds yeah so now i'm I'm like 300 kilometers I, i mean i'm driving it today in 2023 and if i go to the showroom and i buy a car i look at a car an electric car to buy now it's so much better than the bolt that I have. So you can already see these massive differences. So I was interested and I was seeing these changes and I was like, I want to be part of this. And of course, in the UAE, nobody was doing it. So initially, I joined a startup with uh, with an old colleague of mine, uh, called Rivera. We did a bunch of things uh, back then regarding charging station mapping, mm-hmm. you know, uh, working on events, trying to promote e-mobility. And it was, it went quite well. But then in 2020, both of us decided to join as sort of first employees for uh, an electric vehicle company called uh, EV Lab. which is founded and sort of funded by the Shilhoop Group. So that was was a good change of space. You know, I was product officer there, tried to implement a lot of the solutions they still use today, which is, you know, I'm happy for. Uh, At that point, we were trying to push for electric vehicle retail. So trying to push different types of options on the market. So it was generally about pushing, you know, electric uh, mobility that's already there. But I wanted to do something a bit more. So around that time, I also started looking at what's happening in the UK, in the US, these guys are transforming these classic cars. And some are actually trying to transform some special, ind- some special industries like mining, where they, where they have you know, narrow spaces, yeah. real limitations. They're converting some of these vehicles to electric. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like this is something that we could do here. And it's something that will really add a lot of value especially when you go out, even today on the roads, you know it's quite polluted, but a lot of the pollution is not around those gas guzzlers that we see. Like We see patrols on the road, yeah. but the ones that are making the real pollution are actually those diesel pickup trucks. You know those old ones from 10 years ago For that are sure, used to Yeah, if yeah. <laughs> yeah. you,
0: you have got the pleasure to sit behind one of those, it's not a nice experience. Yeah, wait, it wait, so you, wait hold, up, hold
1: up, hold up. You're saying diesel trucks are the worst in terms of uh, well, carbon Carbon ca- carbon footprint when it comes to fossil fuels, right? That's what you're saying. Well, the thing no, I'm asking this because yeah. mm-hmm. our company drives a diesel diesel car. Get right? out of it. Yeah. Well, look, when you start a business, you've got two choices, right? Either you put in money, or you save money and then try to extend your runway as much as you can. At that point, you know we. Oh, diesel was the it, yeah. yeah diesel was the only option. We do want to move to EVs, which is where your conversation comes in with fuse. But so diesel is the worst when it comes to well,
2: when you look at carbon emissions purely, yeah. diesel is actually cleaner by thirty three percent. The problem is that there's a lot of other things that come out as well. So a lot more particulate emissions come out of diesel, which don't necessarily happen with petrol or are cleaned up better. You know, with the catalytic fuel converters and stuff.
1: I love this. This is what this is. This is the core of the podcast by the way you so can you go back to the first point that you made you said uh, diesel is 33% uh, less so can you so
2: it's so for if you're comparing a, a like for like a petrol engine with a diesel engine a diesel engine technically has lesser co2 emissions than a petrol engine wow
1: yeah okay. wow so, i didn't
2: know that wow which is why if you look in the us and probably more europe diesel engines are very popular in suv cars and they're not large so if you look for example here at a Toyota Land Cruiser or something, you'll find like a four litre is common. But in the UK or US, it's a three litre diesel, sometimes even 2.5 litre diesel. So you're able to achieve the same amount of power or torque and drive that vehicle for a lot less.
1: I think It feels like Salman's just targeting me. He said Land Cruiser, which is my car, (laughs) when in diesel cars, which is what our company drives. So it's just like a targeted thing for... Look,
2: honestly, it's... It is really what the UAE drives, right? The UAE is, has has had this reliance on fuels. You know, you go on the road. This is the reality. You you see everybody driving either a G-Wagon if they have, you know, if they're doing a well or want to show that they're doing quite well. And you know, the, everybody else drives Land Cruisers, Patrols. Mm. They're everywhere, it's literally the most popular car on the road. The Nissan Patrol. But we have to admit that it's not that great for the planet. You know, yeah. uh, it's I think it gives 20 liters. Of fuel, or that it consumes twenty liters of fuel for every hundred kilometers, just terrible. If you look at, yeah, you know, from like a fuel consumption perspective, so you're paying a lot in the pump, like four times as much as a car, but then also like that's four times as much emissions.
0: Wow, and so then going back to you know you've done the Shalhoub, um sort of startup incubator with uh, EV Labs, you I think you mentioned, yeah. And then obviously you're seeing this sort of trend what's happening in UK, Europe, you know, US. Where did that sort of, you know, I guess, passion point, I guess you sort of saw a gap in the market, sort of, you know, do something slightly different. You mentioned something about the vintage cars, I think.
2: Yeah. So at that time, you know, I was stricken by uh, the other kind of bug, which is uh, the Volkswagen bug, (laughs) the old one. Yeah. Um, I love them. And they were doing them in the uh, in the US. And I thought to myself, you know what, I really need to try this here just to see, you know. At that point, it was just like a glint in the eye kind of situation. So I bought one. I bought a, a Beetle. I bought a, an entire kit from the U.S. Took a loan actually to do it. <laughs> and then at that time, I was also speaking to my friend and now a partner. You know, we we had known each other for uh, quite a while. We'd known each other for ten years through yep. common interests. Actually, salsa dancing of all things.
0: Wow! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, you got many skills then. Oh well. This is yeah. why we should be doing video podcasts. Okay. We yes. should. We could see dance, Salman dance right, now, right now salsaing okay. around the uh, studio. Yeah, would have huh?
1: made for a nice little uh, advertising thing as well. Salman salsa just just with the letters. Uh, sorry, this is yeah. my uh, stop <laughs> <laughs> is going crazy right now, but I am going to ask for a dance afterwards. Just a step or two. Just to see. Uh,
3: <laughs> I I yeah. got to check if I still check got out it. on our Instagram after the show, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, don't.
1: Oh, yeah, <laughs> or don't. But no, yeah. Going back to the thing, so natural transition. So you're talking about being excited about uh, the. Oh, sorry, Chevy was it? I'm not yeah. a car person, so I tend to no, forget yeah. names. It's fine. It's fine.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, so you know, I was really excited about this Volkswagen Bug. Bought one. Found one locally, Amazing. brought the kid in. And at that time, I was having a conversation with my friend as well. And I was like, look, you know, this is something I intend to do. And he was like, oddly, very enthusiastic about it. I was like, okay, sure. Like, if you want to. And little did I know at that point, like, you know, it would become so core to what we're doing now. And I could not have foreseen that. But at that time, you know, he was really into it. And I was like, all right, let's 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 try to do this. So we took a space in a garage, somebody else's, and then with their help, sort of, you know, built out this bug, um, electric, and like, summer of, uh, in winter of 2020. And by 2021, we had it on the roads. And people were just, they couldn't understand what they were looking at. And they liked the idea. Because the bug, you know, it's not, it's one of those an cars that, car. it's an iconic car, but it was never known for its engine. You know, not like a Ferrari or something. You're like, oh, you're ruining something. Nobody yeah. ever felt that. And so it was kind of like this balance of both worlds, very well received. And so we thought, you know what, there's something here. And uh, that kind of then slowly developed into what we know now, uh, what we're doing right now. So right now, yes, we have, we started with vintage cars and we have quite a few of them, quite a few customers who are interested in like the old Mercedes, the SLs, the SC, you know, stuff that you've seen in the seventies and eighties. But then we're also doing a lot of commercial vehicles because we were talking earlier about the diesel trucks. Yeah. We, t- we were talking earlier about those, um, the minibuses, for example. All of those are actually good targets for decarbonization, but there's no options in the market. Mm. And so what can we do to address that gap? These people needed these solutions for cheap. Nothing that's available even in the U.S. right now is cheap if you buy it brand new. So we're coming here thinking, all right, let's try to address the cost issue and let's try to address this today rather than wait for the manufacturers to come up with something, you know, in the next three years, five years. And so that, you know that kind of brings us to what we're doing right now, which is conversions for fleet, conversions for powertrains, and we're trying to also add in a smart element to it so that there's, you know, some sort of telematics that's being sent out. Through the fleet managers, so they can see their vehicles.
1: That's amazing. That's uh, love the fact that you said there was a small, like a ooh ah moment where you said, "Oh, this is where the this is where the market is going to look like." Can you can you touch points a little bit on that one? Say, how was that transition from going from one little um, Volkswagen or anything, and how you make it into a proper business? Like you said, you didn't wait for the market to come back to you and say, "Hey, this is what we're supposed to do." So let's take it to the market. That's a big risk. As a startup, for any startup, that's a big risk. So, how did you kind of navigate that part of the conversation before we even get into the technical part? Would love, I think, some of the listeners would love to listen from a journey, from a startup mm. founder's journey perspective, right? You know, when we when we converted the bug, we took it, you know, around uh,
2: to, to a lot of people to show, and there was a lot of interest there. And our initial aim was to try to address, you know, this market, this this very niche, you know, very enthusiast kind of focused market. But that doesn't really, while it looks great, and while, you know, you can make a really good business out of it, surely, I, our aim was always to have some impact, you know, on the on the mobility of mm-hmm. the region. And if you look around, today's strength trend 23, now we're in, you know, the options that are there, there's a van, there's a couple of vans that are like $80,000, which is, really out of the budgets for a lot of people. Yeah. So anybody who's doing it for fuel savings is not going to make their money back. What we saw was that by not having to redo the body of the car, a lot of the wiring, a lot of the glass and you know, all the other things that go into it. Not only would we be saving on CO2 emission, but we would be saving a lot on costs. So we'd only really be paying like the major costs would be the batteries, your motors, and then everything else we put into it. That's so your fabrication and you know all of those costs. And that still would bring us to a point where we can offer at half the cost of the EV or even less sometimes. Brilliant. So, you have this ability now for fleet managers to go, oh, if we drive this in the life, within the lifetime of the vehicle, we'll be able to get that money back and make a net positive Mm -hmm. cash flow wise. But at the same time, you're also reducing CO2 emissions by a lot because, you know, we all talk about like batteries. Batteries are CO2 intensive and you know, you mine stuff and it's true. Mm. None of it is wrong. Then again, steel is also mined. Yeah. <laughs> and we get it from iron ore and all the other ma- materials that go into the manufacturing process are also have their own carbon footprint. So we're kind of reducing a lot of that as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, this is some of the criticisms I've seen, obviously, around the EV production in terms of the cars, the engines, and and everything that goes with it, is a lot of the mining for materials, as you know, is obviously come from like seabed, ocean seabed, like dredging. And obviously, there's a disruption to like wildlife, the environment, obviously, uh, in the oceans. But clearly, the longer term benefits, and obviously, there's obviously a need and want to sort of, you know, source those materials for more uh, sustainable solutions. I can see, and and you made a good point there around, you know, the the cost of entry for someone, let's say, for an $80,000 van. And this is where you look at places like the UK at the moment who are having a real crisis of dilemma because one in the middle of a cost of living crisis off the back of you know so many you know uh, variables to the economy where you know the UK had like a commitment I think by 2035 they discontinued the sale of ice uh, I guess so uh, yeah. internal combustion engines yeah if, uh, if I true. remember you rightly and it's been you know from so 2030 they, to they, now 2035 yeah, so they' are aligned true, yeah. with the EU but you know it just seems such a shame that you know we're you know missing out because of cost and lack of investment in this space it almost feels like a bit of a cop-out and you know you on top of obviously like the ulez uh, ultra low emission zones you know it's become very divisive in a political sense you've got people who can't afford to do this so it's like a bit of a gap between who's going to pay for it to get us out of the mess that you know so, to change the way that, you know, systems and processes and, you know, the the EV production, sorry, the, the general sort of mobility system works at the moment. Uh, that's just my two cents. I've just sort of seen it from a trend outside, just, you know, how it's become so difficult, the barrier to entry from a cost perspective. Absolutely. I mean,
2: this kind of thing, you know, when we look at Europe and the US, especially places that are ahead of us in terms of adoption, you see the resistance. Unless there's a heavy government hand in terms of regulations, mm. you'll see these heavy interference... By people that want to avoid change or avoid that mass change that we need you know for any technology it doesn't matter it could be phones could be cars in this case yeah and you really need to have a product that's able to get to market that's so compelling that people just go yep i'm adopting it i mean that's how if you look at most of the tech that we use today you know when it comes to either apps chat gpt i mean you know the stuff is so compelling mm. that it almost makes a, it, it makes its own case. You don't really need anybody outside of it. Sure. That's what we're trying to do, to make the case financially so compelling that people just go, yeah, it just makes sense.
1: Brilliant. Yeah. I think um, there are, obviously, before before you get into the the favorite part of the podcast, which is which is the, the sustainable part of the thing, I would love to know a bit more about how the actual process works because I know there's, you know, it's a combined conversation, right? Because what happens to the engine after like how extensive is the process how long does it take to convert a car Uh, and just from a business perspective do you do you target companies or do you target individuals that are that have used their car for like five or six years and now want a new car i think that's where the because after five six years you want to buy a new car that's i think that's where you guys would come in and say you don't have to buy a new car for half the price or whatever the price point is you can get a new electric car now and have the same land cruiser for example, right? Again, I'm just giving an example. But how extensive is the process?
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the process actually varies quite a bit depending on which cars. So the reason why here and, you know, elsewhere, a lot of these classic cars are being targeted is because they're quite easy to do. They were very mechanical back in the day, in the 70s, mm. 80s. Around the 90s, you had a lot of tech integrated in because there was a mandate. Uh, there was an... Sorry, I'm, I'm just thinking about it. It's a, a US mandate that had the sensor port that would that would basically be able to get data out of the engine. And so this was 96, I believe. Okay. Um, and that then made all the systems in vehicles much more complex. Yeah. So we tried to go for vehicles that are at least pre that. And if you look at us, it, almost 30 years old, which is also the time here in the UAE where classic cars can be registered. Yeah. So That's why when you look at UAE customers, we're looking at targeting clients that are doing 30 years or older classic cars. But speaking about it from the scalar perspective of the business. So you're talking about commercial, you're talking about uh, vans, pickup trucks. We're targeting actually the entire region. So we have a couple of customers, you know, as north as, uh, for example, Jordan, as south as uh, Oman. Nice. We're doing commercial conversions. We're doing, for example, a Toyota Hilux pickup truck, specifically meant for them and their use case. So, So we can, so that is just a use case that's Absolutely suitable for them at a price that works for them. Yeah. And so that's the kind of, uh, you know, th- that kind of brings me over to the technical side, which is how long does it take? You know, how much does it cost? When you are looking at a system develop, ideally, the customer is quite close to the journey. We don't just go, this is a system that fits. We ask the customer, how much range do you expect? How much power do you want? You know, what kind of duty is it going to mm-hmm. do? Very heavy, light, what kind of speeds? And then we develop a system based on that, you know, as per the customer's need. And that can then vary in price, complexity, and time taken. Yeah. But the core essence of the process, I would call it a three-step process, but it's a bit more than that. Uh, We actually take out the entire old drivetrain. Sometimes we just take out the engine and leave the gearbox in. Sometimes we take out the gearbox and the prop shaft as well. Uh, But usually after taking out the main drivetrain system, we scan it with a 3D scanner to assess what we have space-wise, then build CAD models around it to then place in you know, all of the components that we need. So your yeah. batteries, your motors, all of those things. Once you find the ideal fit, we fabricate a system around it, put in the all the stuff that we've already discussed with the customer in terms of, you know, the battery size, motor, power, all of that stuff. Uh, we test fit the system, obviously give it a try, give it a test run, make sure it all works, and then we hand it over. That entire process is done one time for one model of vehicle. So if you have, for example, a... Like you said, like a Land Cruiser, the LC200. That would take you know anywhere between two months to six months to yes. figure out. Because that's the process that we need to be able to assess the entire thing. However, once you do it once, we have now the drawings, the research, the scanning, all of those, those things we have built in. We're now able to replicate that in a matter of weeks. Our end goal, we're not there yet, is to be able to manufacture a kit so that you can bring a car into the shop. And over the, over the course of three or four hours, you're able to remove the old engine and you're able to put in this new system and have the customer walk out. Wow. Three, three four hours, that's
0: a, yeah.
1: that's a great turnover.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you compare it to like today's, I mean, I, we've been looking to try and buy a car recently, either pre-owned or new. And there's just a serious lack of stock on the market and you're waiting months. When EV. Uh, well EV Tesla had a three to six month wait list recently I mean I know the prices have come down recently on the price of a a Tesla and that's trying to make it more accessible but then again there's still the same production and and lead times there but yeah that's amazing if you can get it down to that sort of time span then you're gonna you know seriously eat into a, a new market and there's two ways of looking at it you know clearly you're converting people to EV which is good for the environment then on a secondary level you're giving a second life to a car that would either get scrapped or end up elsewhere
1: I think that that that's that that in key in the scrapping part is a big big issue because a lot of the
0: cars do end up in the well like you said scrap heap landfill I don't know what really goes on particularly in the UA I've got no idea what the sort of end waste management looks like from that perspective
1: well there's a massive market for scrap cars yeah. scrap cars there's, like, there sure, there's yeah. a massive market for this so'm I'm, I'm not really sure the,
2: Well, parts usually get shipped out into Africa or even here uh, in the repair businesses. So, you know, there's a whole market around how cars that have had a light or sometimes even major accidents get fixed up. Uh, We're not going to get to that because that's a whole other can of worms. (laughs) So when you look at cars, you know, passenger cars, you know, you have Tesla making cars and cheaper. uh, They keep getting cheaper. They keep bringing in new models that are a bit Mm -hmm. more affordable. They did it with the Model S, now then Model 3. They're talking about a new one that's going to be even cheaper. There's always going to be a great amount of clarity when it comes to passenger cars. Yeah. The trouble is when you look at commercial and especially when you look at commercial with like, have you guys seen those water tankers that are sometimes they yeah, did, I
0: see them on the road? Yeah. The sweet water. Exactly. The, yeah. yeah. yeah
2: there's, you've seen them, right? So imagine what it would take for that guy to buy an electric one of those, mm. but he only buys the really he only buys the frame and the chassis. And then he has to then make a whole new one of those and place that on top. For the truck? Yeah, for a truck like that, you Mm -hmm. know. And and it's the same when you talk about refriger like uh, when you're uh, cold storage on trucks, when you're talking about anything that's specialized for use, it's much easier to convert that vehicle if, if you have the kit for it than it is to then actually buy a brand new one and then again retrofit the equipment on top. Like a KFU truck, for example, right? Yeah, the yeah, KFU yeah. truck has so much specialized equipment around it, for fuel, fuel delivery, all of these things. If you had to make an electric one, I'm, I'm sure KFU can afford an electric truck. I'm not yeah. saying that. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, uh, if they had to just remove the drivetrain with a plug-and-play kit, let's say that we had done, it would literally take a matter of hours to to then retrofit a plug-and-play kit. And This is the way we do it. So,
1: and how does the safety work? I think safety is a big issue, isn't it? Like, at least from my perspective, I'm, I don't drive an EV, uh, so I don't actually know
3: yeah, particularly the brakes, because I know as soon as you start adding batteries, you add weight to it, which yep. means the brakes might not be as efficient. So you have to analyze that and say suggest to your customers, be like, well, okay.
2: Well, we we know. can look at it like we can look at the vehicle as a whole, right, with the, a bunch of things. One of the things that we look at is the weight, uh, mm-hmm. and so if the weight is within a certain amount of, let's say about five percent, you know, weight gain, it's not a big deal. But if you have ten or fifteen percent, then you have to worry about it because that is you know a lot more than the gross vehicle weight. Especially if you have people inside and you know um, you carrying loads and things like that, then we recommend a bigger brake. But also, you know, similar to engine braking in when you kind of put the gear down. You guys do it manual, you know? You, you know when you're going down a hill and you yeah. kind of change yeah. second and, gear and regen. Yeah, that, so. exactly. So you have regen on motors that ha- adds a lot
1: to the braking. Again, just for listeners, for EVs, yeah. for dummies, explain the right. regen aspect of the thing very quick. Sure. Quick. Let's not be technical. <laughs> just a very quick. Sure. Yeah. Uh,
2: so regen is is. When you put down, you know, power from a battery going into a motor, you're essentially move. you're making this chemical energy, you're turning into tract- traction energy, movement energy. But the opposite, you know, where the in- the motor acts like a dynamo, which then powers, sends power back to the battery. It's kind of the way hybrids work. You know, hybrids just send power back to the battery. That is the way that we're looking at um, that's the way the regen works. But regen it, it, it captures the energy back that was already sort of being used for interaction power, but it adds to braking as well. So you have this in, this increased braking capacity.
3: You have wow. to go back to your GCSE physics.
1: <laughs> no,
2: I understand <laughs> the
3: concept.
1: I understand the concept of it. I was just trying to see from an environmental aspect actually as how much work needs to be done, right? So I know. I know. So look, this is the favorite part of my podcast in general is when we tackle the conversations. Of greenwashing. Not greenwashing, but more on, on sustainability, right? I know everyone everyone says EV is the way for the future. We we are making sure, you know. I have an issue with that statement because it's not factually true. I mean it is, it is, but there's a it kind of omits the fact that there's a massive battery issue with EVs, right? There's a massive issue with because we use lithium. For for the battery that you use for the EVs, um, I'm assuming that's the same case for yeah for for, yeah. for this as well, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. That is a big issue because there's no solution for lithium-ion batteries as of now. There's no specific solution. Well, so it
2: depends actually.
3: Battery recycling, because now as older EVs are starting to come into the second-hand market and being sold, there's going to be old electric vehicles that now decommission. Kind of decommission. So like, is there anything we can do with the batteries but the, on that part?
2: There's actually a lot happening. So I'll just go back to the question, Jazz, that you were mentioning or the concern. Lithium-ion batteries are the only solution that we have at the moment. But lithium itself is not a problem. It's actually all the other minerals that we put in and especially cobalt. This is a conflict mineral. It comes from Congo. Yeah. You know, there's uh, human rights issues mm. there. And I think that trying to address that is very, very important. But there's also... Uh, an issue around Coltrane and a couple of other elements which are used less so, but non-batteries. We use cobalt every day because we have batteries in everything that we use. <laughs> our laptops, our mobile phones. So we really need to get through this, this chemistry as a society. The good thing is, if you look at Tesla, they don't use the same chemistry. They use a cobalt-free chemistry or almost cobalt-free chemistry. They use the LFP chemistry, which is now gaining a lot of traction. And so the combination of minerals that are used there Lithium, yes, but then they use uh, phosphorus and I think another one, I'm forgetting now. They don't use the cobalt and the conflict minerals that some of the other chemistries use. So that itself is now addressing a little bit of the issue. Cobalt-free is is the first thing that we need to look at to get cobalt-free. And then the second thing is where you talk about recycling because they are energy intensive to produce. It takes Mm -hmm. a lot of energy to be able to mine the mineral and then to get the amount that you're going to use. So if you need, like, for example, I I think you have to go through a couple of tons to be able to extract a couple of kilograms. I don't know the exact figure, but that's environmentally quite taxing. You need digging equipment and all. That's where recycling comes in. And lucky for us, recycling facilities have been up and coming now quite well in parts of Europe and parts of the US. So you can actually recycle up to 95% of the battery. Sometimes more. So that's possible. But there is one... Odd caveat I'm going to t- tell you guys about. Oh,
0: no, we love it. Yeah. Yeah. We love it. We Which is that the older the, the better.
2: We all thought that, uh, you know, batteries have a certain amount of life cycles and then they do well until they don't do so well and then you need to scrap it and, you know, buy a new battery. This is one of our fears, no? Mm. Like in electric cars, what happens yeah. when the battery dies? Yeah, right? it's, like, like, an Apple it's like your phone. Exactly. But the thing is they don't, they don't necessarily work under the same parameters because, the, first of all, the chemistry is different for a mobile phone versus your EV. And secondly, they actually don't charge it up to 100%. They don't charge it down to zero. They actually run it somewhere in the region of 20 to 80. You will not see that, but that's within program, within the BMS, and that's something that we do as well, of course.
1: So just again, BMS, building management oh, system. sorry, yeah.
2: <laughs> battery management system. Oh, no, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was close. Yeah,
1: quite close. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, but that's something that we put into the, manage, the, the management system of the battery. So you're really really not using it all the way to the end and you're not filling it up all the way to the top. And so that actually saves you a lot of lifetime. Okay. What's end up happening is you have all of these batteries that have done almost 200,000 miles and they're still really good. Like they're at 90% of their health. So they're not going into landfills, uh, sorry, they're not going into the recycling facilities as quickly as they, these people are expecting them to have mm. to be there. And they're sort of waiting for, the, for them to come in so that they can actually, because their money comes in when they recycle, right? So we have this lack of supply into the recycling industry at the moment because the batteries are overperforming on what we thought they would. It's
0: good. Yeah. Positive. Yeah.
1: That's a good sign,
0: though. That's it. The more adaptation, the more this scales up, the more use and investment goes into it. I guess you know the the improvement will be there the advancement. Um, so, yeah, there those is, is cause. That's that's amazing. I didn't realize. I think everyone like me, you know, the fear of making that jump and conversions to EV has always been around, oh, well, the battery life only has like five to seven years, like warranty or whatever it might have been historically. But that's actually quite encouraging to hear that it's possibly outperforming that. Uh, and it will only go one way, I hope, which is up. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Uh... And what, going back on Fuse and what you guys are doing, obviously, you've done the the Beetle conversion. You obviously mentioned like the Hilux, uh, the sort of different models you're looking at. What is it? Can these be driven on the roads, public roads, or are these more privately owned at the moment? Because I don't know, in terms of, as you said, Dan, and you know, we're looking at you know, the testing and to get sign off on these sort of conversions. Obviously, a lot of investment has to go in there to ensure that they're, they're fit for roads, be it commercial or private use. Are we able to say, say if I bring my uh, whatever car into Fuse, we get it converted to EV, can I take it out onto the roads?
1: Also, I'd like to know what car you're driving because that was a cop out. I would love to know. <laughs> I would love to know what car you're driving.
0: Natural. <coughs> <That> tr- <laughs> oh, God, it's a dusky in here. in <laughs> yeah, that,
1: that was that was payback for calling my uh, coffee cup. Or oh, was it your coffee cup? Oh, sorry. Yeah. I apologize, Ben. <gasps> apologize, but no, yes, that would be an interesting. Uh, to see one of your fused cars on the road, is that a possibility? Yeah, yeah. So the thing
2: is, we've been working on, uh, we've been working closely with the regulators. So we've been talking to RTA and a couple of other entities to be able to legislate for these, uh, especially the commercial side. But it's, you know, as with any government entity, it takes a bit of time. They need a lot of back and forth. So that's something that we've been engaged in, but it's going to take time, honestly, yeah. guys. The way that we, we make cars roadworthy is, in the UAE, we target classic cars. Yeah. And then we get them passed through the classic car registration or through clubs. And then that way, we can have, you know, these kind of cars. They're very, very, very small numbers. You've got to understand that, you know, it's barely like 5, 10 cars that'll be on the road. So mm. these cars go through something special, uh, like a special registration. They sure. don't have the emission requirements for regular cars.
1: Well, classic cars don't have emission uh, requirements.
2: Their uh, emission requirements are much, much lower than what you'd need for example for oh. the regular ones. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean there's no way you can drive some of those seventies, sixties muscle cars otherwise. Yeah. They, they had no nothing. It's just smoke blowing it's
3: out. It's just the pipes way out of the end. Exactly. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Interesting. Not, that's why they sound so loud, actually. Because mm-hmm. if you had a catalytic converter between it would be you know, it would be a bit quieter than they uh, are. They're so, known for their loudness.
1: So these are the cars which which you want you to see on the road with the classic number plates. So these are the ones you're talking about, yeah, right?
2: Yeah, 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 exactly, wow. yeah. So those are the ones that we're targeting. We, we want to have them on the road very soon, actually, in the next couple of months. We're working on a bunch of projects. Uh, but the ones that we're doing... Actively are the ones that are around off-roaders. Actually, we're doing a, a bunch of them. Uh, we're working on some powertrain solutions. So like brand new vehicles that some some people want. We're just working on powertrains for that. And we're working, for example, with a company, uh, a Swedish company called ITDC. And that's the highlight conversion I was talking about. So these are then going to go into in different parts of the world where they need them. Amazing. And they're going to work in conjunction with solar.
1: Oh, that's mad. Though. You, you, Salman said there was, you're converting new cars as well.
2: Yeah, what we're doing is actually these guys are developing custom chassis, for example, for UTV. Okay. So we're putting our drivetrain into a custom chassis okay. that they've built. It's brand new.
1: Okay. So yeah. I, sorry, I thought it was someone who bought a new car and said, all right, cool. I'm going to spend a bit more money oh, and then car convert engine. back into... Uh, yeah. That would
2: be, the, I mean, the guy has to really love the car and really hate the drivetrain, which I don't know how that works, but...
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but also, I, I know um, we were talking about the sustainability part before... Uh, What do you do with the engines once you're done with it? Once you remove the engine, that's a big part of the... So,
2: for the classic cars right now, there's always a requirement, right? If it's a working engine, it usually just goes into another car. Because it's such a... Like, if it's a working engine, it's gold (laughs) for a lot of people. Yeah. The Mercedes ones, always in need. There's there's an ME116, a technical jargon, but it's basically, it's a type of V8 that Mercedes used to make and... Not exactly known for their reliability, so they'll somebody else will somebody else who you know happily take it off your hands um, and we've done that for a bunch of parts and helped customers like that but for the commercial ones at the moment we you know these engines we're trying to get them into a second market secondary market but it's something that we we hopefully want to tackle in like a, a fruitful way so that we're not actually just chucking the engine out mm. you know we're giving it some some proper use
1: that's good nice
3: and going back to when you're talking about your ideal is to have a car come in 4 to 5 hours you will be able to replace the engine and send it back out again are you kind of working towards a modular build system cuz i yeah. know you, okay yeah cuz you don't want to scan like a 2007 Hilux and then someone come in with a 2005 and it's slightly different
2: yeah yeah so the the thing is that uh, for example for the project that we're doing right now with the, with the Hilux that was deemed to be the most popular model in the area that they want to deploy in. Okay. so they have enough of them to do like 50 or 100 easy and so that then makes it very easy for us to fabricate you know multiple numbers of those um, and that's the kind of sort of ethos that we're taking when you come to when we come to decarbonization which we decarbonize by fleet either fleets on taxis on the road you know whether it's in africa they they're so popular with these mic uh, like uh, high, highest vans yeah. mm-hmm. or these old Nissan Air vans. So we look at the number of vehicles they have, potentially, let's say 1,000 on the road or 2,000 on the road, and then we go, okay, make it for that. You know, we can service all of them.
0: Okay. What's the biggest challenge you think, someone for you personally? Is it is it awareness? As in, like, do you need more people to care and want to sort of embrace the technologies that you bring is it the infrastructure in place? you know uh, if it was me maybe going back a couple of years ago, it must be it would be anxiety of either not having the range or I mean it sounds like the range is becoming more more and more less of a problem. It's more around infrastructure around charging points and again, that's probably increasing. and I think in the UAE we actually have the highest ratio for charging points to actually God. EV cars on the road so there's, there's clearly the infrastructure there to sort of meet the demand, hopefully. Um, I don't know where these charges are. <laughs> I can't find. Well, them. there's apps for them. I think you can find them in certain places. It's, uh, yeah, but premium. Well, yeah.
2: you know the the interesting thing is there is a challenge. But if you look at the challenges that we've faced, it's sort of the challenges that a market that's going through that point in the adoption curve goes through. So Cost. in Europe, yeah, in in Europe, for example, the the challenges that we're having right now, we have. Actually, a lot of good infrastructure, but it's always busy. Yeah. So this, what you said, coming back to what you're saying, Ben, charging anxiety is a real problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> these cars go 300, 400 kilometers. They they do the whole day, you know, for the, especially for these taxi guys. Yeah. But the end of, the end of the shift, you know, they're now at 25 percent, 30 percent. They need to charge. You know, there's already a car there, and there's another car waiting. Once yeah. that car goes, and that's then we're third in line to charge. So charging anxiety is is an issue. And we could have seen that a couple of years ago, this was an issue in California, yeah. in uh, the UK. So we're seeing that happen here. And that will be addressed because they addressed it there. But, you know, I guess if you look at the problems that they're having now over there, <laughs> expect that we can, you know, we'll Get probably there. have those as well. Yeah. So if we can plan for those ahead, I'm sure that we'll be able to kind of take tackle those ahead on.
3: Perfect. Yes, yeah, we had that experience yesterday. So I had the kids in the car, got to a charge point. We had about 28 kilometers left. There's two cars waiting. And we sat there it's like, I can't take the kids out of the car or turn the egg come off because I've got a baby. And just oh. watching it tick down, is like, OK, this is getting a bit nervous now. And it's like Mission Impossible. It was. <laughs> yeah, if, I'd have used the radio, but I would have used battery as well. <laughs> just start singing and salsa dancing. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things you've always got to plan ahead. But when it doesn't, it can get quite nerve-wracking
2: yeah it's a bit hairy i mean we had we were trying to charge uh, one of our cars we had wanted to test it at dc charger the fast ones we only found a charger like 30 kilometers out of the city yeah, yeah. that's far and sometimes yeah. i was busy but most of the times it'd be empty but it's like way out on the sticks right
0: well yeah. here's an oxymoron for you you were saying before about what car do i drive we were actually on the wait list for a tesla and there was a three-month wait period, and we thought, okay, fine, but there's a huge issue where I live in a sustainable city where, of all places, sustainable city, you think it wouldn't be a problem, but we can't actually drive and park outside our villas. So we have these communal uh, car parking spaces, which have great uh, solar panels there to sort of power and generate for the community. But... There's only a certain amount of, uh, let's say in the community of 500 villas, there's probably 20, 25 actual designated bays for EV charging. You can actually get one in your car parking space, but actually there's not the capacity there to now for a load of more cars uh, to now sort of have these inserts put in your car parking space. So that's where you have like someone who's willing to adopt and make that transition. But we had to sort of like lose our deposit on the wait list for our Tesla because we couldn't have the confidence at home to have like the charging point there. So, again, the infrastructure is there, but it's not totally accessible for everyone at home always.
1: I think that's the the biggest problem for for anything anything related to sustainability when you're trying to convert people from A to B, right? Uh, It's the infrastructure problem. Mm. We've spoken about this. With fossil fuels, there's 100 years worth of infrastructure put into place. People with jobs, people with livelihood, depending on the fossil fuels. I think that is one of the biggest issues converting from A to B, right? And, And I think someone like Fuse kind of navigates that conversation, makes it easier for some people to go, all right, I don't want to buy an EV. I can convert my current car to an EV and I'm still doing what the environmental
0: aspect of it. If you can get the price right, and this is where it's tricky, I guess, is, you know, economies of scale. You know, the reason why Tesla now have the luxury of bringing their prices down is because they can over years of obviously production and obviously building up a great brand and service. But for you as a challenger brand, I guess it's getting that price right to sort of convert people from going, okay, the price of an engine conversion to EV versus buying a new one, that's where the challenge, I guess, would be. But yeah, the sooner we get there, the
2: better. 100%. Yeah, I agree that the the cost is like the number one limiting factor. I think if we're able to, if, if you're looking at like beyond like there's like a figure 17%, if I'm not wrong, or 7%. Don't quote me on this, <laughs> but uh, beyond you are that, definitely yeah. being quoted on this. <laughs> <laughs> but beyond that, uh, that percentage of uh, adoption, and you have the mainstream adoption. So you're, you know, everyday Tom Dick Harry, and those guys are not as, let's say, flexible or not as accommodating as the initial, you know, the EV enthusiasts that really want to drive the stuff they're not going to adopt if the solutions are not there, especially when it comes to infrastructure, because that's a huge problem. True. But luckily for us, infrastructure is a is an issue. It's a, it's a solution that doesn't have to rest on one thing. Like, how did we come up with Kefo? The idea of delivering fuel sounded so odd or alien at the first time, but now it's like normal. Yeah. And I feel like similar kind of thing can happen with electric vehicles. But the good thing with electric vehicles is that the infrastructure lies all around us. Like electricity is... Everywhere, right? It's in every building. So it's just a matter of figuring out how to smartly manage it and how to then deliver it to the cars so that everybody has, you know, what they need.
1: Love it. Yeah, love, love it. I do. I do have. Um, there's a there's a massive thing, right? So on the first episode, we spoke about how sustainability is it's a bit weird, right? So like, if you don't drive an EV, you're not you're not a sustainable person. If you don't, you know, if you if you don't recycle, you're not a sustainable person. Obviously, life affordability and, and other aspects of life comes into play, right? Uh, how does that affect your kind of conversation that you have? So from an awareness camp, awareness part for new customers or just people wanting to know about Fuse or just the process of converting cars, how much of that impacts your decision-making as a star? Like the, the conversation of the blame game that happens around, or you should have an EV. Like, do you do you use guerrilla marketing tactics to for that to happen?
2: I know it's it's interesting. I've never really used that because I I mean I'm I'm in a way I believe that tech can solve for these issues. If you look at Elon Musk, right, he's not selling these Teslas, thinking, uh, telling you like, oh, it's a uh, it's a sustainable choice. Nobody's buying a Tesla because it's a sustainable choice. They're buying it because it's damn cool. It's an iPad on wheels. It looks like an Apple, like something designed by Apple, and it looks like uh, a compelling product to own. Yeah, You want to be seen and you want to be seen owning one.
0: I and I think love
2: that's
1: the that. idea. I love that. So yeah. I'm sorry. I love that. I'm going to quote you on that one because that is essentially what we want to talk about. Well, in this podcast, we want to make sure when people listen, they understand it's not just, even from a business perspective, right? This is for any business owner that's coming into sustainability or any college student that's listening to this. Yeah. You need to find the balance in sustainability and making sure there's a business to actually run, right? You're the, the value add that you're giving should be worth it. I love the thing you said. It's an iPad on wheels. I sat in Dan's car the other day. I was like, oh my God, what is this? This is not normal. <laughs> <laughs> you can see people walking next to you and I'm like, this is not normal. And your car tells you there's a car in front of you 50 meters ahead. Start breaking down. I'm like, what? What? What is happening? But that's the. That's what I love about
0: the whole... Yeah, you can make yeah. it cool and sustainable.
1: Yeah, I think yeah. that's what Fuse is doing. Like, Imagine if I can convert my Land Cruiser after 10 years of driving and my dad's driven it, I've driven it. Now, instead of buying a new one, I can carry on driving it. All I have to do is just take it to fuse. And I think that's the cool aspect of things. And now, obviously, like you said, affordability. Yeah. yeah. That's a, that's the next pinnacle to kind of achieve, isn't exactly,
2: it? Exactly. Yeah. We want to make it so that it's it's the choice. You know, it's it makes sense. And that's the key here. You can't force people to be sustainable. You really have to give them a compel. Like, no other option has to be as compelling as that. And then people will just make the choice anyway.
1: Lovely. Elon Musk's strategy of overcharging initially I think it makes sense isn't it like overcharge the niche customers first because they're ready to pay for it and then hopefully infrastructure and everything comes into play where then you can make it affordable for the masses for the masses I'm not gonna to claim to be following the exact strategy but you know <laughs> <laughs> it does work yes I mean yes of course Elon there's a there's a there's a gap in the market with Elon Musk and everyone else right so uh, if you're a budding startup founder and you want to start something maybe Elon Musk is not the best strategy to follow maybe Salman from Fuse is uh, probably a better oh. way to go <laughs> better way to go well
2: yeah. i don't know i hope that you know we can have this conversation in 5 years when we're a lot more established and have this, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: what, what what's next what's next for fuse what's the what do you want to achieve in the next year what were you looking for the market to give you in the next one one to two years so really we're trying
2: to get down on that commercial options, right? So you're looking at highest, you're looking at Hilux. There's a huge sort of shift happening in Africa. You know, when you look at Africa as a continent, the majority of people a couple of years ago, maybe 10 years ago, you know, argued that Africa was behind on uh, internet, on the internet, because they didn't have wired landlines. Guess what happened? Everybody got wireless. So so everybody (laughs) has internet now. They leapfrog the landline technology to wireless. And so that's what I think, I believe that's what's happening with Africa, that they're going to leapfrog into sustainable electricity generation and then through that, sustainable mobility as well. So you're going to have a lot of solar deployed because Africa as a continent has a lot of sun. It receives a lot of sun and it's able to deploy this the capacity that it has into electric mobility. So our focus now is to try to address a lot of the needs there, especially when it comes to four-wheelers. So your vans are difficult to decarbonize stuff. Yeah. Our strategy is sort of to go to commercial, to go towards Africa, to go towards... Places that need it the most, and provide affordable solutions to them.
1: Damn, that's a oh, am so I allowed to say that? By the way, but oh, well, well done. Yeah. That, that is a very good mission to have. Yeah, uh, to superb. have affordable cars and electricity for people across across a pro- full continent. That is uh, well done. Yeah, someone. good good luck for that. That's amazing.
0: Superb. Thanks. Hope so. Yeah. We hope you see it. That's it. We'll be back here in a year's time to sort of track on that one. But um, yeah,
1: when you yeah. do get famous, don't forget this was the podcast kind of that, just, <laughs> yeah. that launched you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. Amazing. Yeah. You guys
2: have the. You guys have our, our uh, slots on the bill queues. Yeah, dedicated for you guys. Your Land cruisers coming.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it depends on the cost. I, yeah. Once it becomes a bit more affordable, I'm the first person. Done. First person that's there And
3: Done. Done. <laughs> My wife wants an electric bug. So. Oh really? Yeah.
1: Oh, then we can sort her out on that immediately
0: <laughs> awesome
1: maybe you should call more people like this like where I've been sore for you <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: brilliant uh, and someone how can people find you uh, I guess Saman saying on LinkedIn what's your website
2: yeah so our website is uh, fuse.ae we're also on Instagram at fuse underscore a so you can find us through there you know all our lines are open so if you guys want to just have a chat <laughs>
0: Brilliant. Conversion. Yeah. Any
2: of them were open.
0: Yeah, and we should uh, yeah, we'd love to come down and see you at your new location. I've I've been down to the one you had in Alcoz a while back. Um but now you're in DIP, I think you said. Yeah, we're
2: in DIP too now. We just moved to like a dedicated location, which is a bit larger than we had too many projects coming in, so we needed <laughs> we need to have a good space for it.
0: We'll try and get down there, three of us, and we'll uh, do some uh, take some photos, and it'd be good to sort of you know, bring some of this to life, actually. So um, yeah, post series of the podcast will start sort of releasing a bit of content. But uh, yeah, really good luck with everything. Thank you so much for your time and insights. That was really really useful. Yeah, I've learned a lot today.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's really really great being here. So thanks again.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Sustainability podcast. Drop a follow to never miss an episode. For more information on ourselves, there's a link in the show notes. See you next time.